Peace to you. Welcome back to the Naked Truth and thank you for joining me. It's a weekday. We're going to pick up where we left off in the book of the prophet Isaiah. We've made it to chapter 19. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its mist. So Isaiah's the prophet. He's got a prophecy. That's what burden means here. It's um it doesn't mean like he's lifting weights. It seems it's more like a heavy, dark vision that he has to deliver to the people who are it applies to. They don't always listen to it, they won't always hear it, but he's still burdened with, he still has the mission of producing it or presenting it, whether they'll hear it or not. Um, and this one, it seems, is for Egypt, same Egypt that exists in modern times where the pyramids are. So it's a prophecy to Egypt. And it's saying that the Lord is traveling. The Lord is here in all caps. So it's we've gone over with how that translation or how that translation works or, you know, seems to work. Um, so I won't go into that again. Um, but it's saying basically that uh, the prophecy is going to cause an end to the religions that are worshipped uh, in Egypt rather than worshipping God. Verse 2, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother, everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. So it seems civil disturbances are what the prophecy is declaring for Egypt. Verse 3, the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council and they will consult the idols and charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. So uh, it seems that God, and we're just going to say it's God, since that's who it's being uh, addressed as or presented as, whether we believe it's God Almighty or not, the vision is um, saying that God is going to be the cause of the civil disturbance, the civil war that happened in Egypt, and um, that the Egyptians are going to try what they can as far as I guess in plain English magic to try and combat the spirit of God and the things that God's trying to do, or at least intending to do against them. Um, that's what the idols, the charmers, the mediums and sorcerers are, is about. Just a curious about sorcerers since it takes on two different uh, meanings in the Bible. Let me see just which one this one's referring to. So in this one now, sorcerers, I'm using the New King James Version that says sorcerers, but it turns out the word that it's um, uh, translated from originally is wizards. So it lets you know it's actually talking about people who do magic spells like Gandalf or something. Um, and the word, it looks like is Yudoni. Yudoni. Um, let me see. Let's see if we can hear it pronounced. Strong's H, 3049. Yidonai. 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 Just like how Adonai has that same sort of ending on it, Yidonai has that ending on it. And it's the word wizards in Hebrew. And that's what's being translated to sorcerers in English. And while I'm looking at the translations, I see that another thing that's translated um one way in English, but it's actually something else altogether when it talks about 
the uh, charmers and mediums, it's actually talking about familiar spirits. It's talking, that's what the word, it, that's what it's translated um, from. Oh, that's the words that, those are words are closer to the meaning of what it's saying than mediums. Um, but either way, it basically gets it said, people who can interact with the dead. That's who the Egyptians are going to try to consult to see what they can do about these prophecies that Isaiah is dropping on them. Verse 4, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. So um, the prophecy is not good for Egypt. Um, it seems a wicked king is going to be uh, who they're going to have as head over them. And I think these prophecies have already come true. Um, I'm pretty sure they already came true like in the Bible days, like the, read about the prophecies in some of the other books that we've already went through, like Kings and Chronicles. Verse 5, the waters will fail from the sea and the river Will be wasted and dried up. So now not only are um, civil disturbances declared against Egypt, but also natural disasters like the waters being dried up. So uh, that would be disastrous for any human being to not be able to have water. So it, and since there the agriculture there depends heavily on the Nile, it's the same part of Africa I'm thinking it is. Um, the water drying up would be devastating. Verse 6, the rivers will turn foul, the brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up, the reeds and rushes will wither. So it looks like uh, truly a drought where all the bodies of water are going to be dried up, not just the ones for drinking, but others even for the national defense. Verse 7, the papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away and be no more. So it's talking about, Isaiah's prophecy is talking about literally withering, not a spiritual or figurative uh, drought, but actual literal withering of and drying out of the land. And papyrus, just in case you don't know, it's like the priest, the precedent, the pre, it preceded paper. Uh, that's what people used to use to write on originated there, as far as we know, in Africa with the Egyptians. Verse 8, the fishermen also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. So um, Isaiah is saying the people who are depending on the river, whose livelihoods were based on the waters, are going to be really sorrowful and mourning because the river's dried up. That means their income also dried up. Their livelihood dried up. Verse 9. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. So uh, it seems, well, I guess because flax is, um, it grows. It's like cotton. It's not, that's how it's harvested. That's how it's produced. Um, so if there's no water to grow it, you're going to be in trouble trying to have it. Um, so even people who like to make clothes, like myself, would be um, in bad shape. Verse 10, and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be trouble of soul. So if you're a person who clocks in and clocks out, you're a wage earner, you're in trouble, is what the prophecy is saying for the Egyptians. And again, 
these prophecies probably already came true. If we go over again the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, these prophecies probably already happened because at different points, not only were the kingdoms of Israel and Judah attacked and uh, conquered by different forces, whether it be the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the Assyrians for sure, but also the Babylonians conquered lots of other places, just the same way the Romans did in ancient times. So, um, and the same way Egypt conquered other places previously. Um, so uh, it's not that hard to believe that these um, things have already came to pass. Verse 11, surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I'm the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. So now it seems um, the prophecy is to mock the people giving counsel to the Egyptians. That's what the Pharaoh is. It's like the president, only it's the king of Egypt. And um, the prophecy is mocking those who, I guess, in their hubris and their pride, trace back their lineage to royalty and to blue bloods and whatnot. And I guess that makes people think they're exempt from suffering. Money makes people think they're safe from any harm. Verse 12, where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. So now Isaiah, or better yet, better said the prophecy is saying, well, if you're leaning on what your wise men have told you, your counselors, your uh, witches, your spirits, your wizards and all of them, if you're leaning on all that, where are they now? Uh, apparently they, you know, didn't survive. Um, but let's see. Um, Isaiah is saying that the prophecy he's giving is against Egypt and uh, it's from God and God is determined to make it happen regardless of what any other counselors may have told them. Verse 13, the princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noth are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. So it seems the delusion, the foolish pride of thinking they can counter whatever it is God has in mind is not um, isolated to just uh, one area. It looks like uh, these other areas, Zoan, Noth, it's also, it says ancient Memphis is what the um, footnote says. So just like there's areas in America and in other places that have names that seem odd and strange, like Manassas or Memphis, it turns out they're just derivatives of names that have been before. And in that sense, I guess that's where Proverbs is right about that. Anyway, there's nothing new, nothing old, nothing new. Um, so anyway, um, the prophecy, it seems, is saying that all of the ones who are thinking that they can counter the prophecy that Isaiah is giving are deluded. They're fooling themselves. Verse 14, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they've caused Egypt to err in all her work, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. So Isaiah is saying that it's God who's behind the confusion that Egypt is experiencing, and that it's God who's even sent a perverse spirit, so basically an evil spirit, 
sort of the same way we read previously, where it seems that God would employ the God of the Old Testament, as they believe to be God, would employ demons, devils, evil spirits, however you want to call them, to do God's bidding, to go work on people and influence people to do things that would be detrimental to them. According to what we read, it's God who's behind that and who sends those spirits, at least in some instances, to get people to do those things. So then is it fair for people to be judged for what they do if they've been influenced by God himself, God self sending uh, spirits to do the influencing? I suppose it would be a yes because... I would, I guess, my, I don't know, but I would guess that it would mean you'd still be subject to judgment for, for that because you weren't walking. If you're not walking in the proper spirit, a light spirit with God as a Christian, plain English, and that sort of spirit and energy and light, then you're choosing not to. And in that sense, maybe you open yourself up to those other spirits and not just, uh, Spiritual spirits like demons and devils, or however you want to think of them like that, or possession. But other spirits too that can make you weak. The spirits that are in a bottle that people can drink and find those spirits and take them somewhere else. And those kind of spirits affect people probably even um, just as real. Maybe even more measurably than uh, the spiritual spirits. But anyway. It's bad news for what um, the prophecy basically and saying that uh, Egypt is going to be confused. God's going to send the confusion and the people in Egypt are going to walk around in darkness. That's what the staggering is about. Verse 15, at least that's how it reads to me. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, palm branch or bulrush may do. So it, um there's a footnote there saying we could compare this to Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. This is where a similar phrase is given, a similar for a similar prophecy, where things are going to be so bad, there's not going, not going to be anything salvageable. I think that's what the palm branch and bulrush have to do with the tall and thin blossom palm branch or the low and full bulrush like a bush, you're not going to be able to have either one. And it's saying not the head or tail, so not those in power or the working man, the wage earner. Both are going to be SOL. Both are going to have a hard way to go. Verse 16, in that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. So, if you would doubt it, that the Bible was full of patriarchy or uh, uh, sexism, where it's preferred sex is men, males, then here's another proof of it, saying that they're going to be like women, and it's implied that they're going to be weak or vulnerable. Women can give birth. Females can actually carry a baby around, let it grow in them, and birth it through a tiny opening that they have. It stretches and lets a whole baby out that grows up into a whole human being, a person. So I really don't think of women as being fearful, but sexism will make you think of women as being fearful. And that's just one more sign that it's humans, men's hands, that 
wrote and compiled the Bible, and only a tithe of it, at least in my opinion, my understanding, only a tithe of it, a tiny portion of it, is the Word of God. And the Word of God was delivered to us by Jesus himself. He gave his life to bring it to us. Took his life back up again, uh, but to bring us that message, the red letters, the gospel. So, again, that's what I think we should focus on. That's what I choose to focus on. Believe which one. Verse 17. Oh, well, before we leave verse 16, so it's saying that Egypt's basically going to be vulnerable, helpless, and um, and that it's God's going to be the one terrorizing them. Uh, verse 17, and the land of, of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. So uh, remember, the kingdoms are divided into two at that point. And the prophecy, Judah and Israel. And apparently, um, the prophecy is saying that the kingdom of Judah will be a terror to Egypt when the prophecy comes true. Verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Hmm. Okay, so... If you're reading along me and using a New King James Version, you see the title there where it says Egypt, Assyria, and Israel blessed. So now this is moving on to another prophecy in the same chapter, but it's moved on from the prophecy about Egypt, or at least the bad prophecies for Egypt. And it seems there's more prophecies that are going to include Israel now and also Assyria, the conquering kingdom uh, of Assyria. Um, so let's see, verse 18. Um, Oh, so about verse 18, when it says Canaan, that's the same area that's basically considered Palestine or Israel in modern times, or what I think of as the Holy Land, which one of uh, what's generally referred to as that, used to be called Canaan uh, before it was called Jerusalem, Israel, Palestine, and so forth. Before it was called any of that, it was called Canaan, the general area, uh, way back in Genesis. Um, let's see. Um, and the part about the city of destruction has a footnote too. It says some Hebrew manuscripts, Arabic, Dead Sea Scrolls, Targum, and Vulgate read sun. So instead of city of destruction, it's going to be called city of the sun or city of sun. And the Septuagint reads Asadek, literally righteousness. So Different scripture, different scrolls, different manuscripts of the same verse read differently is what the footnote is saying. In some scriptures, some manuscripts, it will say uh, one will be called the city of destruction, like it reads in the New King James. Another one says one will be called the city of righteousness. And another one, in another version of the scriptures, it says one will be called the city of Sun. So let's see with the rest of the reading which one of those makes the most sense. It doesn't make sense to me that it would be called the city of righteousness if all those different destructions are determined against it. Why would God do a righteous city like that? Well, let's see. Verse 19. If it were my guess, I'd say city of destruction. That makes the most sense. 
or City of Sun, since um, I think Memphis or North, uh, at least one of those ancient cities, had to do with sun worship and the people there worshiping the sun and chariots of the sun and so forth. So either the sun or destruction make the most sense, I'm guessing, to me. But let's keep reading. Verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. So again, I don't know if that's already come true or not. And when it says a pillar, that could mean lots of things. It it could mean, um, you know, just like a totem pole pillar or like the Washington Monument pillar, or it could mean a checkpoint, like a post, a pillar where you have to past security to get through. And if that's the case, that's what it's like there now in the so-called promised land, holy land. There's checkpoints all throughout. So it's possible that that's a reference to it. Um, but as far as an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, um, I don't think, yeah, the one, the altar to the Lord that the uh, Muslim people worship isn't it's in Africa but it's not in Egypt it's in uh, Saudi Arabia I think so I don't think that's referring to that the Kaaba I think is what it's called um but I don't know it says a pillar to the Lord at its border uh, um I don't know that one again I think could be the security checkpoints that are there now um possibly or if it's ancient history and already come to pass and maybe it's something that already happened and is lost to time. Verse 20, and it will be for a sign and for witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a mighty one. And he will deliver them. So, okay, now if those are in capital letters, savior and mighty one. So presumably that's talking about Jesus. So if it's talking about Jesus, then that means the prophecies about Egypt previous to verse 20, 20 have already come true. They must have already, Egypt had to have already been conquered, and which, again, we read about in some of our other daily readings. So most likely it referred to them being conquered and taken by other neighboring or, you know, invading uh, forces. Um, and then after that, we're reading verse 20. Clearly, it's talking about the Savior and the Mighty One. At least that's my understanding. So, up to chapter up to verse twenty, it seems to me must have already come to pass. Those prophecies had to have already come true if we're already to a prophecy talking about Christ. But I'm just trying to figure it out. So we're just reading verse twenty one. Then the Lord will be known to the, to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. So Isaiah is saying, apparently, once Christ came, that then the Egyptians also will find salvation. Also had salvation offered to them. And even they, I don't mean even because they're any different than the people reading about saying even because they weren't the ones who the prophecies were really originally given to. Um, but they also are going to find salvation according to what Isaiah is saying in verse 21, at least my understanding of it. Verse 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt 
he will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. So it sounds like discipline is what uh, the prophecy is declaring, not wiping them out or um, or um, dismissing them altogether. Not at all, but instead just disciplining them, striking them like you might slap your child who says something sassy. Uh, um, but then also embracing them, healing them, uh, you know, if they're hurt. So the same thing. Uh, God, it seems God's going to inflict the, the 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 pain, but then also comfort the wound. Verse twenty-three, which I would think people only do if they care about you. If if they didn't care, they'd let you just run wild and act crazy, and or they just strike you and not have any uh, loving or care for you after it. Um, so I guess that's like tough love. Verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. So it seems like the declaration is that there won't be enmity anymore between the nations, those nations. They won't be opposing anymore, but instead they'll both be joining together in worship, which again, after Christ came, it sort of that is sort of fulfilled because Jesus offers salvation to whomsoever will, not based on who you're born to, or your uh, ancient lineage, or who you may trace your roots back to. None of that. It's whomsoever will. All you have to do is believe. That's the uh, the the faith part. Um, but then you have to also hear the word of God and do it. So that's the action part, according to Christ. Verse 24, in that day, Israel will be one with three, one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. So now the three um, nations or peoples are, gonna, are all being mentioned now, and they're not friendly nations. They, Egypt at one point enslaved the people who uh, formed Israel uh, after they welcomed them and helped them during the famine. So in that sense, I guess it's just like what it's striking and then healing as uh, Egypt helped and then struck. Um, and, and then so Israel and Egypt have their past and then Assyria has its historical past where they've conquered, like I said, I think both Israel and Egypt, but it seems and plenty of other places. But it seems here, according to the prophecy, there'll come a day. And I think if that was Jesus being referred to in the previous verse, then the day has already come where the beef that the three had is gone. And instead, they're all considered a blessing in the midst of the land. How will that go? Verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So there's a shocker for you. How many people in churches, especially in America, if you ask them, who would the Old Testament say God's people are? Almost, I'm sure 99.9% .9 would say the Jews, the Jewish people, the Israelites. That's what they'd say. According to verse 25, Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets in the Bible, Old Testament and New, is 
He has prophecies about Jesus that came true in the new. Jesus even refers to him in the new. He is given the prophecy that according to God, because remember, that's what Lord is representative of, God, is saying Egypt is God's people. God bless them. So all that white supremacy is just more nonsense, proven to be just more nonsense, Bible-thumping nonsense of people who are just bigots and racists and think that God's on their side because of whatever it is they're born with, however it is they're born looking, or whatever it is they've been taught makes them superior. And thank God not everyone feels that way, white, black, or otherwise. Because again, there are plenty of white supremacists who aren't white. There's black, white supremacists, crazy as that seems or sounds. Just like there's Jewish anti-Semites, there's plenty of black people who hate black people. There's plenty of white people, believe it or not, who hate white people. And like I said before, one of my good... One of my white lovers told me once, nobody screws over white people like other white people do. And it just makes sense. Black people don't have the power to do it. So instead of directing that negative energy and hate at black people, why wouldn't white people just, hateful white people that is, or even not even hateful one, oppressed white people, direct that energy at the one who is oppressing them rather than punching down at everyone else who's already struggling, the black people, the people at the border, the women, the gay people, the lesbians, the trans people, the others. Why do people do that? I guess because it's easier to punch down than punch up. Anyway, I thought thought that's very interesting, that the people who are God's people are the Egyptians. And it makes sense. Because, and you don't have to take my word for it, like I said before, and I'll try to remember to put it, and I'm only going on because it's the last verse. I'll try to remember to put a link to, you know, the movie reference um, in the description, but highly recommended and included it on my site when it was live. It's on there now if you still want to go look through it and find it. Um, The Human Family Tree. Check that out. It would make sense to understand. It It would make more sense. It would make verse 25 make more sense to know that all of us alive today on earth originated there. Doesn't mean everyone everywhere ever originated in Africa, but it does mean everyone alive today originated there. So no matter how we look, we're family. So anyway, Jesus, uh, the scripture there, none of this is red letters. It's not Jesus saying any of it. But clearly the prophecy is saying that God is saying that Egypt is God's people. Assyria is the work of God's hands. And I think in the, what makes that make sense is that Assyria was the conquering nation. That if the previous verses we read are true, used to discipline Egypt for one, most likely also Israel. And in the same way, Babylon was used to uh, discipline most likely Israel, Judah, the kingdoms. That's it's that When it says the work of my hands, I think that's what it's referring to. That it's God empowering those nations to do those things to make those things happen for a big picture plan to unfold. And in Israel, my inheritance, I think that means inheritance means basically descendants and what the descendants will get. And I think the inheritance, clearest uh, treasured inheritance is Jesus. That's what makes um, them the chosen people, Israel, the chosen people, because they're the people whose uh, 
records were kept to show that Jesus did actually exist. Jesus was born. Jesus walked the earth. And whether you believe it or not, he performed those miracles. That's the article of faith. But he obviously existed. Um, prophets, pointed, prophets pointed to him coming. Then he was here. The Romans, who didn't believe in him, but were in power at the time, documented his life and his death. And then even his enemies, the people behind the crucifixion, documented his miracles. They didn't deny his miracles. They didn't deny he was doing things like raising people from the dead, healing people, any of those things. They didn't deny any of that. They just didn't accept it. Um, so anyway, that was the last verse. So that's where we're in this reading, at least this portion of the reading. Um, the passage, <clears throat> excuse me, the passage of the day, number 16, is in the book of John. It's 14, 2 and 3. So that's John, fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. And they are, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So this is one of my daily meditation passages. Um, and we'll take it verse by verse. The first one, uh, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you is actually where I start um, when I um, recite this or memorize this. That's actually where I start the verse. Uh, and I, I focus on that part of it because as a Christian and from my Christian walk, I believe the path leads to that place that Jesus is going to prepare for us. And regardless of what preachers will tell you, that to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord or when you die, you're immediately in God. That's not what Jesus said. Everyone doesn't make it to God's presence according to Jesus. It's not like the judgment day like your churches preach. It's not even like a great white throne judgment like Revelation says. That's one of the reasons it seems specious to me. Because that's not what Jesus says happens. And when Jesus even gave us the example of the rich man and Lazarus, when they passed away, there was no great white throne judgment not mentioned. God isn't mentioned there as either one of them having an audience with God. And neither is the devil. So the place where Jesus is calling to prepare a place for us, that's the um, what makes that's why that verse, part of the verse is what stands out to me about that verse. And then verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So um, that part, that verse um, is significant, I think, or stands out in my memory because it refers to the second coming, the uh, the. The second coming, the apocalypse, the end of the world, when Jesus comes again. And again, it's not like how preachers will tell you a great white throne judgment and a thousand years of this, that, and the other, and then eventually uh, the presence of God. Jesus didn't say any of that. Jesus says when he comes again, it's hereafter you will see. That means later on, after now, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the power that's god and coming on the clouds of heaven that's how jesus says the second coming is happening no rapture nothing like you're going to disappear in the blink of an eye 
like other religion tells you, like it says in other scriptures in the Bible. That's not red leather. That's not Christianity. It may turn out that way. That's not what Jesus says is going to happen. Um, and as Christians, again, I think that's who we should lean on. So anyway, that's the passage for today. And that's the reading for today. I thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. Hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. Love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.